Hello and welcome to This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into opportunity. Please follow us on social media and rate the podcast as it helps others to find us. I hope you enjoy the show. Finn Ross is a young guy on a mission. He's completing a PhD on seaweed carbon sequestration, and he's also the co-founder of Carbon Z, a company offering voluntary carbon credits based on the restoration and planting of native trees on New Zealand farmland. He's the son of entrepreneurs Jeff and Justine Ross, owners of Lake Hawea Station, New Zealand's first carbon-positive farm. As a worker on the farm, Finn has seen firsthand how Kiwi landowners must foot the bill for native afforestation. It's a problem he'd like to overcome. Finn, thanks so much for joining us. I think we're lucky to get you. You've just been in Indonesia, is that right? Good, Vincent. Yeah, great to be with you. And yeah, just just got back from Indonesia um, early yesterday morning. So um, yeah, had a had a fantastic trip over there working with um, seaweed farmers. Yeah, we're going to get into that in a minute because there's a connection between seaweed farming and carbon Z. But let's start at the beginning because Carbon Z is kind of one of these new breed companies that is trying to activate, if I understand it right, trying to activate reforestation, in particular native reforestation on New Zealand land for New Zealand landowners. Have I summarised that right? Maybe you could do a better job. Yeah, no, that that's 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 pretty much it. Um, I think the the national incentives at the moment in New Zealand are clearly pretty skewed for um, uh, incentivising afforestation in New Zealand you know we're seeing a lot of productive sheep and beef land getting planted in pines permanently for carbon credits um there's been a lot of you know really devastation um from the slash damage in production forestry uh, so clearly our forest um, management strategy in New Zealand needs a lot of work and one of one of the key key um things that we need is incentives for restoring native forest for kiwi farmers and that was really um the key premise behind carbon z is how can we equip uh, landowners farmers around new zealand um with a financial incentive to restore native forests and it works effectively as an offset scheme so you calculate uh, t- tell us about how the actual mechanism works yeah, well, we're very simply selling carbon credits, um, and it's. It, it, I guess it's a. Um, you know, we're selling carbon credits to investors, individuals, but mostly mostly Kiwi businesses who are hoping to offset their um, carbon footprint. Um, mm. So, you know, some some of our customers, um, uh, Halala Vanilla, Victory Knives, um, they make Maggie Marilyn. Uh, they've got their company emissions, and every year um, they want to mitigate that. Um, this this idea of offsetting goes around a you know is, is sort of the the well known term um, and how it's interpreted that you'd offset those emissions with um, a carbon removal. Where of the perspective that that term offsetting sort of is, can invoke emissions reduction complacency um, and allow businesses to sort of buy their way out of it. Our perspective is very much that businesses need to be cutting emissions as far as possible and then pairing their emissions with um, high quality recent native forest carbon removals, which is a bit of a mouthful, but I think an important distinction that we need to be um, need to have a strong dual focus on emissions reduction and carbon removal. How do you help companies reduce their gross emissions? We're, we're shortly launching a carbon zero certificate. 
um, a, a new carbon zero certificate in New Zealand, which will be the first to require um, substantial emissions reduction as part of that certification process, which I think has been a really um, a, re a really really big gap. You know, we we desperately need radical emissions reduction um, and and need that in our um, in our certification processes as well. Yeah. Once the gross emissions have been dealt to, or at least best as possible, companies are typically left with a kind of rump of emissions that is hard to get rid of. And that yeah. is where your role comes in in issuing credits for native reforestation. Exactly right, yeah. Um, and I think most people are on board with the fact that um, there's these really hard to abate emissions or you know, the, the, the difficult emissions to reduce for companies, a lot, you know, a, a huge portion of companies' emissions, they can make, um, you know, meaningful reductions in the short term. But like a, um, a, a helicopter tourism company in Queenstown, for example, you know, it's very difficult for them to cut cut that fuel emissions. Um, hmm. And unless we're talking about closing those companies down, um, you know, the best option in the meantime is to pair that emissions with removals. But I, I think the other really important thing that's often looked about carbon credits as a mechanism is the, the number one thing that motivates a business to reduce emissions is having a price on their emissions. As soon as a company has to pay for their emissions every mm. year, that's going to motivate them to reduce those emissions more than anything else. Tell us about the nature of those credits, because there's credits and credits, right? You know, the, the, that's, it's a system that has come under a huge amount of criticism because of the quality of the credits, the dodgy issuing of, of credits. One issue that we know about is um, additionality, where um, you know, th that would have been done anyway, whether there were cre credits mm. issued <laughs> or not. So um, can you explain what gives your credits credibility? Yeah, there's, there's two core components. One is the traceability and the native forest. So we can track every credit back to exclusively native forest and it's all new carbon, uh, new new recent carbon removed out of the atmosphere measured um, with extreme accuracy via artificial intelligence and satellite imagery with help from our partners, Carbon Crop. But I think the biggest thing that gives us credibility um, over others in the market is something that's often extremely overlooked, and that's efficacy of credits. Mm -hmm. um, and when I say efficacy, that's the percentage of funds that's actually going towards impact. Um, it's something I think globally in the carbon crediting space at the moment is completely overlooked, um, but it's something a lot of people are just starting to um, sort of cotton on to. Um, Can and, you explain that a little bit? What do you yeah, mean by efficacy? For sure. So there was a, um, a biodiversity credit project I, I just saw last week, actually, um, and it was being sold. Each each credit was being sold for twenty dollars, but only two dollars of that twenty was going to actual impact on the ground because a huge portion was being used on consulting or auditing or verification or certification. And a lot of the highest quality carbon credits that I've been seeing lately um, from Vera Gold Standard, the big international um, certifying bodies. Um, a super high quality, you know, strong scientific um, support behind those credits, great community-led projects, everyone's sort of fantastic, they tick the additionality box, transparency, no double counting, no leakage, all of this stuff, um, and then um, I was on a webinar the other day with one of these projects, a blue carbon project in the Seychelles for mangroves, and you get to the last slide, 
and it was only delivering like 30% of funds to actual restoration on the ground. And 70% of funds are being used in steering groups for consulting and things. And there's a lot of cases like this now where the threshold, because people are so scared about greenwashing, is so high for carbon credits that these projects um, are delivering a really small amount of actual funds to on-the-ground impact. So for me, the number one prerequisite um, uh, for carbon crediting, environmental assets generally, um, and what we're really championing is efficacy. And as far as I know, we're the only company who's actually stating the efficacy of our, yes. of our credits as, as a key Super part. Super interesting, isn't it? Because it's almost a wild west is what you're describing. It, it, is, to, it is to some extent. And I think um, a lot of people... Um, you know, there's, I guess there's terms like carbon cowboys and, you know, all, all, all this stuff th thrown out there at the moment. There's a lot of general skepticism of carbon crediting globally. Um, and, yeah, f for me, uh, you know, the, the the technical details of carbon crediting super, super important. Um, but absolutely the number one thing that we shouldn't lose sight of is how can we get funds as far as possible to um, real impact. Like another another one was... Another example was the Australian Blue Carbon um, methodology. So my, my PhD is at the Blue Carbon Lab over here in um, Melbourne in Australia. The government set up a methodology um, to award blue carbon credits to projects. It's been open for almost a year and a half now, and there's only been um, one or two projects that have submitted an application, and neither of them have actually gone through yet. So they've spent millions setting up this system for blue carbon projects, but because the hopes you've got to jump through are so significant, you need a project with X scalability. Um, it just doesn't make it worth it uh, now. Mm. So I think a lot of people um, are thinking, can we do more pragmatic local impact-led projects? Um, yeah. Given all of that, given the uncertainty and the criticism, what gave you the confidence that you should continue to, you know, to launch a business in this space? Yeah, well, I mean, at, at the moment in New Zealand, there's not a single incentive available to restore native forests for farmers in New Zealand, which is completely crazy. Right, so um, I, um, I guess um, definitely conscious, um, you know, a, a year and a half ago when we sort of properly launched into this thing that there's going to be um, um, all sorts of scepticism, you know, at, from different parts of the market at, at different points, um, but definitely fully believe in what we're doing in terms of getting money to um, Kiwi farmers to restore native forest. Yeah. Did, did part of the motivation or at least the origins of it come from working with your parents on their farm at um, Harwaya Station? Is, was that kind of where you started to discover the potential for native forestation? Yeah, ab ab absolutely. Um, I guess it was it was two parts. One was being here at the Blue Carbon Lab in Melbourne and just seeing the sort of increase in corporate interest in carbon credits. Mm -hmm. uh, and then understanding on Lake Howe Station, the family farm, um, you know, New Zealand's first carbon zero certified farm, that um, there just wasn't any incentive mechanisms for us. You know, we wanted to do re restoration. We wanted to plant trees. It was all completely self-funded and it was the same for all the farmers in the region. Um, you know, there's a, there's a few grants for tree planting available um, and some, you know, grants for pest control, but largely um, there's no incentive to restore native forests. So it was sort of pairing those two things up and also realising that most Kiwi companies um, are importing these emission avoidance carbon credits from overseas. New Zealand's actually a large net importer of voluntary carbon credits which is pretty crazy given that 
New Zealand should, in my view, be a net exporter of voluntary carbon credits. And it's a big opportunity for us, you know, not only is that good, potentially good for New Zealand's balance of payments, a significant earner, but it's money coming into rural communities in New Zealand, which is fantastic. And it's money being paid to farmers to restore native forests. So voluntary carbon credits as a um uh as an export market for New Zealand is something I'm super, super excited mm, that's, about. That's interesting. Um, Tim Flannery, the Australian scientist, uh, spoke at the Peer Advantage conference last year. You you were there, in fact, um, at speaking at that same conference, and he talked about the potential of New Zealand's forests act as one of the most significant carbon sinks, given that they're moist and temperate, uh, and more effective actually than tropical forests at at being carbon sinks because they are so sustainable over such a long period, and that is the potential, isn't it? That what you're describing is to grow that moist, temperate forest as an active, long-lasting carbon sink that then could be commercialised and sold to the world as a uh, as a potential uh, some sort of credit. And and what are you thinking? A biodiversity credit or uh, simply a carbon credit? And and what would be the I suppose the mechanism that you know what's required, maybe at a kind of regulator level to make that come into existence? Yeah, just um, on the and definitely agree with with Tim on that. I'm actually on the um, uh, the Kelp Forest Foundation scientific board with Tim, so I know him really well. And I've been um, a huge uh, even as a a young naturalist you know, <laughs> studying at university a few years ago. He's always been a role model for me. So um, he's pretty inspiring. I agree. Amazing. Yeah. Um, we're um, just on your last point quickly on biodiversity credits. I think there's something everyone's talking a lot about at the moment. Um, and we're actually just about to launch one. Um, and um, ho- hopefully um, at the, at the end of the month. So super, super excited about that. Um, yeah. There's definitely a, a bunch of regulatory changes we need to the ETS in New Zealand. The ETS in New Zealand is a bit of an outlier globally um, in that um, for the for the companies that are mandated by the government to buy carbon credits off the ETS, they can't use those credits to claim carbon neutrality or to um, cancel one of those um, forestry units against one of their units of emissions um, to balance those out, which is, which is a little bit complicated, but they have to go out and then buy voluntary carbon credits again um, so we've got this sort of weird system where we're mandating buyers to buy carbon credits, but you can't use those carbon credits um, uh, for your own emissions budget, mm-hmm. which is different from the Australian system and other other systems. Um, so one of the changes I'd like to see is um, making all ETS units in line with um, eligible as voluntary carbon credits or eligible as a unit you can cancel against your emissions um it's probably secondary to the biggest change which is needed which is um banning permanent pines um in the uh, pines in the new permanent category which i think um a lot of people are calling for now and which is sort of you know one of the main um controversial topics uh and then i think yeah um you know as we've just seen with lawyers for climate action um absolutely support their work that um you know we need a we need a higher price of carbon in new zealand and um uh, and and more incentives for 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 natives, um, which will you know that that'll be the key mechanism to enable us to um, act on native frustration. How do you um, address the question of additionality on native 
forests. And you had a challenge around that when you first started. I think you had to suspend trading before you even launched because you couldn't prove additionality using those um, carbon crop credits. Am I understanding that correctly? It's somewhat, yeah. I, I, so the, the pause, uh, we, we paused on trading for 24 hours after um, launching, and that was just out of respect for buyers so that we could make sure that all buyers were super comfortable um, that, that, they, that they had all the information available after questions were raised. Once we felt like we'd appropriately, appropriately addressed all those questions for buyers, resumed trading and definitely maintained um, throughout the entire process of maintained full confidence in the credits that we have. We sold on day one, 100% back, back mm-hmm. that fully uh, and, and continued to, to do so. It was just out of um, you know ensuring respect for buyers. They had full information on additionality. It's an extremely nuanced and complex subject, um, particularly in the New Zealand context. New Zealand has um, some of the strongest legislation in the world around forest protection, um, preventing the deforestation of indigenous forest, which is fantastic, um, but it makes additionality almost impossible to choose. I mean, you know, one example is like as a family farm, Lake Hoare Station's planted 20,000 native trees. Um, we plant at um, 4,000 stems a hectare at um, $10 a tree. So, um, and we get half a carbon credit in year one from the emissions trading scheme. So you're looking at $40,000 planting effort um, and then you're getting half a half a carbon credit in year one. And, you know, even over 10 years, which is sort of the maximum timeline for investment, um, you know, it's, it's very difficult to get any, any return from carbon credits. So, um, carbon credits only cover roughly 10% of the planting costs for us. Mm-hmm. So we're going to do that planting regardless. Um, so it's it, it's not it's not strictly additional because we're going to do that planting no matter what, regardless of carbon credits. But I don't think anyone would deny us carbon credits for recently planted new native trees. Um, and, um, you know, there's I guess every forest um, is, is different and it's impossible to say how much in one forest um, would have happened because of um, a low, low rainfall year. Mm. Maybe there was a beach mass this year, which means um, you know a lot, a lot more mice, slowing regeneration. There's just massive, massive um, variable and nuance with um, additionality. So, yeah, I, I think the, the pragmatic approach is um, uh, awarding carbon credits for newly sequestered. Um, uh, newly sequestered carbon and regenerating native forests. And that's where we landed. Um, happy to unpack that conversation with anyone. It's, a, <laughs> it's an interesting conversation around morality, for sure. Um, and there's a couple of other um, sort of analogous carbon projects around the world as well that are useful useful comparisons in that discussion. Um, but so, it's, an, on, it's an evolving one. Um, I, I guess the question would be, what gives you... Y- you the confidence and gives your customers the confidence that there is additionality in in these you know reflected in these credits yeah um so uh, one of the principles of carbon crediting is that you can't issue a carbon credit for a forest that um will sequester carbon credits in the future mm. So the carbon has to have already been removed. Mm. In 
on in, in carbon removal projects, um, the carbon has to have already been removed. So therefore, if you've already funded the carbon removal, it's um, then immediately additionality comes comes into question. Additionality is super easy to prove for avoided deforestation projects. Where, where the confidence comes in, I think, is that most buyers fundamentally believe it's the right thing to do to be um, rewarding farmers for their restoration efforts that has led to new carbon sequestration coming out of the atmosphere and that these buyers know their funding is going to further the ongoing protection and restoration of native forests. And what would what would be an example of the kind of activity that would increase sequestration? Uh, this... Like planting more trees, obviously, that's that's an easy one, but would you include pest control or fencing or you know kind of maintenance maintaining in an existing stand would that qualify yes absolutely i mean planting trees is, is the obvious one but from a sort of utilitarian perspective um if you look at new zealand and say hey how do we want to have the biggest bang for buck impact on climate change um it's that sort of active restoration beyond tree planting. Um, I was at a, a site in the Hunuas, one, one of our sites in the Hunuas the other day, there's this massive epic natural seed bank in the Hunuas, you know, Rimu, Kauri, Totra, um, Nikau. And the because they're right on the edge of this big seed bank, the native regrowth is actually out competing pine trees that are planted, which is pretty phenomenal. So in a spot like that, um, simply putting up a fence and stock exclusion is leading to really significant um, re regrowth. So that's that's one big one is stock exclusion, um, pest control, and then controlling of woody woody weeds. I think we're we're lucky in New Zealand that um, the actions, the conservation ac actions, are pretty simple. We've got a lot of big conservation challenges, but fundamentally the um, actions that we need uh, are relatively 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 simple. And yeah, definitely in my view is. How can we just be pragmatic about making sure we've got as much income, you know, as 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 a high percentage of funds as possible going towards those, um, going towards those core actions that we know work. Mm. What's the connection between the work you're doing with uh, Carbon Z and uh, the work you're doing in, for your PhD at Blue Ocean, but also, um, you know, your work in Indonesia? Yeah. So I originally. Um, there's so many exciting opportunities with seaweed and we'd be here for a couple of hours if I started going <laughs> too far into the weeds in the seaweed rabbit hole. Um, originally, I was looking at seaweed from carbon crediting opportunities, um, hence the link for Carbon Z. You know, we, we're really interested in developing different carbon crediting projects um, and in particular blue carbon. Seaweed um, and my actually a, a, a big review, a big international review paper has just been published this week on um, the role of seaweed as a natural climate solution and implications for carbon crediting um, with with seaweed. Um, there's, I, I guess, a bit of an intersection in that my sort of science knowledge from the blue carbon arena and seaweed and climate change, seaweed as a natural climate solution, there's a lot of overlap and definitely my skills is on the um, the intersection between the nitty gritty scientific side of things um, and how we can um, operationalize or, or commercialize these um, uh, exciting natural climate solutions. Yeah. Just, I, I guess, just make the connection really obvious to me, Finn. I am a bit thick. Why are you, why, what role 
can seaweed play in sequestration? There's there's four um, there's four distinct roles seaweed can play. One is low carbon seaweed products from seaweed aquaculture. So bioplastic from seaweed is one I'm super excited about. Um, if we can have a carbon positive bioplastic product rather than a petroleum based product, mm -hmm. number one. Number two is at seaweed seaweed farms. Um, it's growing and shedding carbon as it grows seaweed. And that carbon is being sequestered in sediments below seaweed farms. And that's the work I was doing in Indonesia is that, you know, they've got these massive, massive seaweed farms and carbon's being sequestered below the seaweed farms. Um, so that's two. Third is this sort of controversial moonshot idea of growing seaweed and sinking it into the deep ocean specifically as a carbon sink. So the seaweed is um, one of the species we've got in Littleton Harbour, actually, um, is the fastest growing species on the planet, up to half a metre a day, extremely phenomenal growth rates, sucking in that carbon, but seaweed breaks down really quickly and that carbon can get back into the water column. So it's sequestering it into the biomass and then sinking it into the deep sea, but um, that topic alone has many, many challenges. And then the fourth one is restoring wild seaweed forests um, in New Zealand. We've had, um, I like to sort of say the underwater underwater bushfires essentially, but they sort of go unnoticed of you know seaweed die-off. Tasmania had 95% die-off of seaweed forests, which is just absolutely catastrophic. Um, and restoring these wild seaweed forests and their natural carbon cycling is another important opportunity. It's a kind of... Um unsexy version of a coral reef collapse yeah yeah it possibly it possibly is yeah yeah i mean like australia you know the australian bushfires were the were the um were, were massive all over the media but the tasmanian um bushfires underwater um uh just didn't have any of the same attention it's certainly true in the hauraki gulf isn't it with the um these kinnabarans that have just devastated the kelp forests um, connected probably to the loss of um, uh, fish that are going to predate on the on the kinna. Um and uh, the, you know the, the, so often we find these problems are connected, aren't they? These sorts of interconnected ecosystem problems that we're having to address. What's the outcome you're hoping might happen as a result of? Uh, your work and your PhD and this this work you're doing in Indonesia, what, what is the tangible outcome? I, 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 what I'd really like to see, um, and I've sort of been investigating all four of these different opportunities and trying to work out what's what's the biggest, most actionable one. And for me, it's the first one I mentioned, low carbon seaweed products. So seaweed um, has so many potential applications, um, you know, bioplastics, biofuels, pharmaceuticals, fertilizers, nutraceuticals, food products, um, all these uh, cool emerging industrial applications. And people have been saying for um, a while now that seaweed products are great for climate change, but there's real, there's no numbers around that at all. We don't know how, we don't know what the net climate benefit is of these seaweed products. Um, and so putting some hard numbers on um, what is the climate change um uh, benefit of, of 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 these low carbon seaweed products is is what I'm hoping to do. Well, that's fantastic. When are you finishing? Do you think when when <laughs> if, are you ever finished on a on your PhD? <laughs> I've, I've I've got a I've got a year to go, and I hope I hope I'll finish then. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting talking to you, Finn, and I wish you all the best uh, for both prizes for um, Carbon Z, but also um, your PhD in this work and seaweeds. And no doubt we will hear more. I'm, I'm sure you will. Yeah, thanks very much, Vincent. Really appreciate it. 
This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into opportunity. Please follow us on social media and rate the podcast as it helps others to find us.